Good evening to you once again as we come together as a part of this gospel meeting. I want to say thank you for your presence, for choosing to be here. Uh, if you're visiting, we welcome you. If you're not visiting, we are glad that you're here as well. Certainly looking forward to an opportunity to tonight to break open the Word of God with you. Uh, tonight we are going to look at a story out of uh, the book of 2 Samuel. And this story spans about seven chapters there from chapter 13 to chapter 19. And it's a lot of material to cover, so don't worry, we're not going to read all seven of those chapters. I would encourage you at some point at home to go take a look at those chapters and read this story in its entirety. It's a very interesting story, but it's about a man named Absalom. And Absalom was a son of King David. And so I actually want to back up as we introduce this topic to the chapter previous uh, to chapter 13 where it introduces Absalom, chapter 12 we find this verse in verse number 7 where the prophet Nathan is speaking to David and he says, Thou art the man. Now if you recall what's happening here, uh, this has been a series of events that has been unfolding in David's life where he goes up onto a rooftop and he looks and he sees a woman on her rooftop bathing and her name was Bathsheba. And he lusted after her and decided that he must have her and so he did. He committed adultery with her. They conceived a child through that union. Uh, he ended up having her husband killed in an attempt to, uh, to try to cover up what he had done, his sin. And so the prophet Nathan comes essentially to deliver God's warning to David uh, about what he had been doing in, in committing these sins before God. And he uses a story, an illustration, to bring David to his knees, essentially. And what Nathan told him was this story about a rich man and a poor man. And this rich man had many sheep. He had a lot of different sheep. And then there was this poor man that lived down the road who had one little ewe lamb. And this rich man was going to entertain some guests, and instead of taking a sheep out of his own herds, he went and he stole the poor man's one lamb. And he used that to feed his guests. And the prophet Nathan tells David this story, and David is angry. And he says, who is this man? And then Nathan looks at him and he says, you're the man, David, because that's exactly what you did. You stole Uriah the Hittite's wife when you're the king of Israel and had multiple wives and have all the blessings of God of being the king of a country. And you stole Uriah's wife. You took something that didn't belong to you. Now, as a consequence of this action, Nathan tells him a couple of things, and I want us to pay attention to this, this prophecy about what's coming for David. Verses 10 through 12 of 2 Samuel 12 says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Now this is God pronouncing judgment upon David. And he's telling David that because you sinned, committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then essentially committed murder to her husband Uriah, he says two things are going to happen. I'm going to raise up evil against you out of your own house. Out of your own household, there's going to be problems. The sword's not going to part. You're going to have to fight for your kingship. And it's going to come from your own household. And he says something about his wives. He says... He shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son in a very public way that David's wives would be taken from him. And so I want us to remember those things as we go through this story of Absalom. Now I want to introduce the characters to you because there's a lot of moving parts in this story. I want to make sure we all follow it and stay together. So I'm going to introduce the six major characters that we're going to be talking about tonight. So our primary character is Absalom. He was the third born son of King David. He had a full-blooded sister named Tamar. She was the daughter of King David, obviously, 
and they were the children of David and David's wife, Maacah. All right, so Absalom and Tamar, full-blooded brother and sister, children of King David. They had an older brother, half-brother, named Amnon. Amnon was the firstborn son of David. So at this point early in the story, Amnon is first in line for the throne. And he is Absalom and Tamar's half-brother. Uh, he is the child of King David with his wife, Ahinoam. All right, and then we've got three other secondary characters that are come, going to come to play in the story. Joab, who is the friend and commander of King David's army, is going to play a big role. Ahithophel, who is one of David's advisors, who is going to eventually support Absalom uh, in Absalom's revolt against King David. And then Hushai is another advisor of David, who is essentially going to play a double agent. All right, so there's a lot of characters, a lot of moving pieces. We'll explain as we go. Hopefully you will find this story as fascinating as I do. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1, it says, It came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Now remember, Absalom and Tamar, full-blooded brother and sister, their half-brother, who's older than them, Amnon, looks at his younger half-sister, and he's filled with lust for her. After revealing his longing to his friend Jonadab, Jonadab gave him the idea to feign illness and ask that King David request that Tamar come and take care of Amnon and cook for him in his chambers. So Amnon, the firstborn son of David, he feigns illness and he requests that the king send his younger sister Tamar into his chambers to take care of him. King David does. So once Tamar was in his chambers, he sent everyone else out of the room and he asked her to lie with him and to commit sin with him. She refused. And so he took her and he forced himself upon her. After taking what he wanted, after his evil deed was done, the scripture says that Amnon hated her and cast her out. We see the next verse, or we see another passage here in verse 19 of that chapter that says, And Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of diverse colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. Verse 21 says, But when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. And Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Now, that garment of diverse colors that she tore as she, as she ran away crying and sobbing after this vicious attack that had been carried out on her, it was a special garment that adorned the virgin daughters of the king. And so after she had been ta attacked by her older brother, she goes crying and sobbing and tearing that special garment that were given to the virgin daughters of the king. Now, when it, verse 21 says, when David heard of these things, he was very wroth. Unfortunately, that's the only reaction we see from David. We don't see any punishment. We don't see any consequence. We just see that he was angry. Absalom, who loves his full-blooded sister Tamar, is angry and hates his older brother Amnon now for what Amnon has done to her. And I think we can infer, infer here that he also was probably not pleased with David for taking no corrective action towards Amnon or putting any consequence in his way. So Absalom waits two years. And for these two years, he is plotting a way to get revenge on Amnon for what Amnon had done to his sister Tamar. And he finally finds the way he's gonna do it. So Absalom plans a big feast two years after this attack. And he requests that King David and all of the king's sons appear at this feast. King David declines the invitation, but all of his sons, including Amnon, the firstborn, arrive at Absalom's feast. In verse 28 and 29 of 2 Samuel 13, it says, Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say unto you, Smite Amnon, thou kill him. 
Fear not, have not I commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. And then all the king's sons arose and every man got him upon his mule and fled. And so two years of plotting this revenge pays off for Absalom. He gets his older brother there. He tells his servants, when I give you the signal, when he's drunk and he's not paying attention, you kill him. And they did. And so Absalom murders his older brother Amnon because of the attack that he had taken out against Tamar two years before. Now David at first receives this servant that runs up to him and says, all of your sons have been killed at Absalom's feast. And David begins to sob uncontrollably for all his sons are dead. But a second servant comes and says, no, 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 all your sons aren't dead, just Amnon. And Amnon has been killed by Absalom. Verse 32 says, let not my Lord suppose that they have slain all the young men of the king's sons, for Amnon only is dead, for by the appointment of Absalom this had been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. And so we see the carrying out of revenge here as Absalom gets that revenge and takes out Amnon. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. Now Geshur was the land of Absalom's mother. So after Absalom commits this murder, remember he has now murdered the king's firstborn son, even though he is also David's son, he's murdered King David's son, and so he flees out of fear for the consequences that may take place for this murder. And so he goes to Geshur, the land of his mother. He stays in exile with his mother's family. Now notice what it says about David mourning. And there's a couple of different ways that you can take this. One, you could interpret this in verse 37 that David is mourning for Amnon, who was killed, and then is eventually comforted and begins to long to see Absalom. But you can also read it that David is mourning for the lost relationship with Absalom and is comforted now that his not very good son Amnon is now dead. And despite David having taken no corrective actions, now Amnon is out of the way because Amnon obviously was not a good person. But regardless, David at some point along the way begins to long for Absalom. Despite the fact that Absalom is now a murderer, David wants to have a relationship with him again. So fast forward three years. 2 Samuel 14, 1 through 3 says, Now Joab the son of Zeruiah perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched thence a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner and put on now mourning apparel and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman that had a long time mourned for the dead and come to the king and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So it's been three years since Absalom committed the murder at the feast and killed his brother Amnon. He's been in exile this whole time. David's been longing to have a relationship with him again. Joab, who is the king's friend and commander of his armies, he sees that David is longing to have his son Absalom returned to him out of exile. And so Joab hires this old woman to put on an act essentially in front of the king. And he hires her to come and tell the king a story. And this is essentially the story she says. She says, I have two sons. And one of them rose up in the field and killed the other. And she says that now everyone is demanding justice for the son that was killed and wants to take her remaining son, the murderer, and put him to death. But she doesn't want to lose the son that she still has remaining. And so she asks the king to protect him. And David tells her that if anyone attempts to harm her son, that King David would stop them, that they would not harm a hair on his head. And so the woman responds, if you're willing to protect my son who murdered his brother, why won't you go and bring your son that's in exile back here to Jerusalem? And essentially David looks at her and goes, 
Did Joab put you up to that? I mean, he saw right through it. He knew that Joab had put her up to it. But nevertheless, he told Joab to go and to bring Absalom home. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returns to his own house and saw not the king's face. So David allows Absalom to come back after those three years in exile, but he's still not quite ready to have the big family reunion. So for the next two years, Absalom lives very close to David and the palace and all that in Jerusalem, but he does not see his father for those two years. Now, finally, Absalom has had enough and he tries to get Joab's attention. He eventually burns Joab's fields in order to get Joab's attention. And finally, Joab goes, what? And he goes, you tell my father that either I want to be restored to him as his son or I want to be put to death. Essentially, Absalom goes, this not being able to see him, but living very near him, I'm done with it, either put me to death or have me restored as his son. So Joab goes and tells the king that, and King David is going to call Absalom to him. Second Samuel 14, 33, Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face before, or to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So David chose to restore Absalom as his son and that relationship between father and son. And now we might point out that Absalom is the heir apparent to the throne at this point. He is the next in line for the throne where something to happen to David at this point. So David has forgiven him and he has welcomed Absalom back into the family. Now, I want you to pay attention to this description of Absalom. 2 Samuel 14 verse 25. It says, but in all Israel, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. From the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he pulled his head, for it was at every year's end that he pulled it, because the hair was very heavy on him, therefore he pulled it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. Now, how would you like that to be your description? In all of Israel, there was no one to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. From top of the head to bottom of the foot, no blemishes on him. This guy from this point on, as you're imagining him, I want you to imagine a physical specimen. I mean, this guy was an Adonis. He is man pretty, all right? He is something to behold, all right? Great looking guy, very kingly. Now he also had a very, very giant, amazing head of hair. All right, so every year polling hair is King James for cutting hair. So once a year, he cuts his hair. And it says each year he was cutting off 200 shekels after the king's weight worth of hair, which there's some disagreement about exactly how much that is. But most people put that somewhere at about five to six pounds of hair. That is a lot of hair on your head. Now, what most likely would have happened since he's the king's son, as he had that much flowing, thick, long hair, is that it would have been wrapped on top of his head, sort of resembling a crown of sorts. And most likely they would have sprinkled gold dust, put jewels. It would have looked very majestic and kingly. So from now on, as we talk about Absalom through this sermon, I want you to think about that man, pretty Adonis, physical specimen, amazing to look at with a big giant head of hair that looks like a crown on top of his head with gold dust and jewels. I mean, he just looks majestic, looks the part. But not only did Absalom look royal, he was very charming. And we're going to find out that he had a way of convincing people to do what he wanted them to do. But he also took actions like this. He would have 50 men march before him as he went anywhere in town so that it would look as if he was the king's son, the heir apparent to the throne, the majestic prince of Israel, he hired those guys to walk in front of him to make him look good to everyone that was around him. Those were the types of things that Absalom did. 
In 2 Samuel 15, 2 through 4, it says, Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, O that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. Now for four years... For four years, this charming, good-looking prince, son of King David, is standing outside of the palace. And as anybody is coming, approaching, wanting to talk to the king, he's stopping them. And he's saying, hey, friend, why are you coming here? And they'd, they'd introduce themselves. They'd tell him why he's here. And he would, he would put on the show going, you know, if only I were in charge. I would, I mean, your cause is right, it's good, I would make sure you would have everything that you need to have, I would, I totally feel for you, and he charmed every single person that came to the palace that had a problem, and convinced them that he was the man that could help them with whatever that cause or that problem was. And meanwhile, he's talking down his father David, the king hath not deputed anyone to hear thee, the king doesn't care about you, but I do, I'm here to listen, I'm Absalom. And so for four years, he does this. Now, just as a point of reference, if you ever read this in the King James, it's going to say 40 years. And that's a mistranslation in the King James. Uh, It's not possible for it to be 40 years that this happens, uh, just based on the timeline of King David's life and everything else that goes on. So the more modern translations have this at four years. So that's just an FYI if you're looking at that version. 2 Samuel 15 verse 6, it says, On this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Four years worth of this and his plan works. He convinces Israel that he would be a better king than King David. And for four years, King David lets this happen right underneath his nose. And so now Absalom is ready to make a play for David's throne. So he lies to David. And he says, remember that time when I was in Geshur in exile for three years? He says, at that time, I actually made a promise to God. And I promised him that if I got back to Jerusalem, I would go to Hebron and I would offer a sacrifice. And I haven't done that. So he says, Dad, I really need to go to Hebron. I need to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. So David says, all right, go, do it. But he didn't go to sacrifice to the Lord. He went to Hebron to make a play for the throne. He used this opportunity to betray his father. In 2 Samuel 15 and verse 12, it says, Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. And there came a messenger to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. So David gets word that while his son Absalom is in Hebron, he is gathering people behind him, gathering troops, and even turning one of David's most trusted advisors and counselors against him. And this man was Ahithophel. So Ahithophel was one of David's trusted counselors, and now he has turned, and he is supporting Absalom in his cause to take over the throne and the kingdom. And so David decides at this point the best course of action is to leave Jerusalem, because he believes that if Absalom brings that army with him to Jerusalem, that he will not be able to withstand. So David leaves. 2 Samuel 15 and verse 14, David said to his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee for we shall not escape. We shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. David says, we're getting out of here. Now everybody in King David's family and friends and servants and everybody leaves the palace and leaves Jerusalem except for 10 of David's concubines who he leaves to take care of the palace while he is gone. And David now begins a journey toward Mount Olivet. 
Verses 30 and 31 says, David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet and wept as he went up and had his head covered and he went barefoot. And all the people that was with him covered every man his head and they went up, weeping as they went up. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now I want to notice a couple of things here. One, notice the attitude of King David. As he is approaching Mount Olivet and he's going up this, this hill, this, this small mountain, he goes barefoot and goes with his head covered. Instead of being angry, instead of blaming anyone or blaming God or throwing curses toward Absalom, he goes toward this place to pray in humility. These actions of going barefoot is so that he will physically feel pain as he's walking up and experience the pain and the shame of what he knows are the consequences of his own action. Because if you recall, one of the things that Nathan looked David in the eye and told him was that there was going to be evil that was going to rise up of his own household and that the sword would not depart from his house. And David is experiencing this right now. And so he goes up to worship God at this place and then he learns of Ahithophel's betrayal. One of his servants says Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And so David recognizes here that this counselor, this trusted counselor has betrayed him and he's saddened by that. He prays that God would turn his counsel into foolishness. Now, 2 Samuel 16, 16 through 18 says, It came to pass when Hushai the archite, David's friend, was come unto Absalom, that Hushai said unto Absalom, God save the king, God save the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this thy kindness to thy friend? Why winnest thou not with thy friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, Nay, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his will I be, and him, and with him will I abide. All right, so what's going on here? As David is at Mount Olivet, he learns that one of his trusted counselors, Ahithophel, has betrayed him. A second trusted counselor named Hushai shows up and says, I'm here to be with you, David. I'm here to serve you. I want to go with you. And David turns to Hushai and says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go to Absalom, and I need you to pretend to do what Ahithophel has done. I need you to pretend to betray me and go into Absalom's camp as a double agent. And then I need you to try to help me from the inside. And so Hushai, David's friend and counselor, agrees. And so he goes to Absalom and he says, Whom the Lord and this people and the men of Israel choose, his will I be and with him will I abide. And so Hushai plays the part of the double agent well. He goes, he speaks to Absalom. Absalom is going, why aren't you with David? I know you're David's friend. Why aren't you with him? And Hushai says, hey, I'm with the people and you're the guy. And the people have chosen you. They said, you're the guy. And if you're the guy, I'm gonna be with you. And so he plays to Absalom's ego and plays his part well. And so Absalom invites him in to join his camp and be his counselor. They use actually two young men as well to send messages back and forth so Hushai can keep David apprised of what Absalom is doing. All right, so 2 Samuel 16 and verse 20, it's time to figure out how Absalom is going to take care of David. David's fled Jerusalem, but Absalom knows as long as David's out there, he's not won the battle yet. So Absalom said to Ahithophel, give counsel among you what we shall do. And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Go into unto thy father's concubines, which he hath left to keep the house. And all Israel shall hear that thou art abhorred of thy father, and then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house, and Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now Ahithophel, remember, he's the counselor that actually did betray David. And so he tells Absalom, Look, 
you've got to make this rift short. You've got to make sure there is no chance of reconciliation. There's no chance David's going to take you back. You've got to make it him or you because you want to be the guy that comes out on top. So here's what you do. You go to the palace in Jerusalem where David left those 10 concubines and you take those concubines and in the sight of all of Israel, you take them and you lie with them. And so Absalom listens to that counsel of Ahithophel and he does that. Now concubines were legally bound to the king. They were legally considered wives but they did not share the same social status as full wives of the king, so to speak. But they are legally bound to the king, and to touch them or to take them was absolutely a punishable offense by death. And so Absalom goes, and he lies with these ten concubines, uh, same legal status as wives for the king, in the sight of all of Israel. And it's interesting, ironically, that Absalom performs the same evil act with his father's concubines, that he hated Amnon for so much when it came to his sister Tamar. Now, after this is done, that rift is short. David's not going to take Absalom back. That's what they believe anyway. And so Absalom has got to be able to come out on top and take care of King David. So moreover, Ahithophel said unto Absalom, let me now choose out 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue after David this night. And I will come upon him while he is weary and weak-handed and will make him afraid. And all the people that are with him shall flee, and I will smite the king only, and I will bring back all the people unto thee. The man whom thou seekest is as if all returned, so all the people shall be in peace. So Ahithophel says, all right, you've lied with your father's concubines. Everybody knows there's not going to be any making up. You've got to now win this battle. You've got to kill the king. He says, give me 12,000 men. I'll chase down David right now. I'll kill him. Everybody that's with him, I'll bring them back. They'll bow to you, and you'll be king of Israel. Now, Hushai, remember who's playing the double agent, he's really on King David's team, he hears this advice, and he's going to offer an alternative approach for Absalom. Hushai pipes up and says to Absalom, the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. For, said Hushai, thou knowest thy father and his men, that they be mighty men, and they be chafed in their minds as a bear robbed of her whelps in the field. And thy father is a man of war and will not lodge with the people. Hushai says, whoa, 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 now slow down. Don't give Ahithophel these 12,000 guys and go chase after David. You know your father, him and his mighty men. I mean, they are warriors. They know how to battle and know how to fight. We've got to be better prepared for that than just sending out 12,000 guys tonight. And so Absalom actually listens to Hushai and agrees with him. Hushai says, therefore, I counsel that all Israel be generally gathered unto thee from Dan even to Beersheba as the sand that is by the sea for the multitude and that thou go to battle in thine own person. Hushai says, moreover, Absalom, you need to be the guy to lead him. Because remember, you're great. You're the people's choice. You're going to be a better king than David. You need to lead the people, but we need to wait. We need to call everybody. We need to get a big army together. Now, all the while, Hushai is doing this to delay, to give King David word that Absalom is coming and give David time to prepare his men for battle. And it works. The plan works. So Absalom listens, says, and when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, He saddled his ass and arose and got him home to his house, to his city, and put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. Now Ahithophel, who was the counselor that actually betrayed David and was on Absalom's team, he now has fallen to second place counselor, apparently. Hushai has won the battle of counselors and he's now Absalom's guy. Absalom's listening to Hushai. And so this seems like an overreaction to me, honestly. Um, you know, I, I think you could still be a, a second place counselor and stay alive, but apparently he didn't think so. So he's uh, upset that Absalom didn't take his advice and his counsel. He goes home, 
he took the time to put his household in order, but then he takes his own life, and he's, he's out of the story. So there is no more Ahithophel after this point. 2 Samuel 18, verse 1, David, who has been warned by Hushai that Absalom is gathering an army, and he's coming, has time to prepare. So David numbered the people that were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. In verse 5, it says, The king commanded Joab and Abishai and Atai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. So David's preparing. He's got enough time now, thanks to Hushai. He builds his army. He prepares them. He sets the men, sets captains over them. And he sets three commanders essentially in charge, Joab, Abishai, and Atai. And he counsels with these three commanders and says, when it comes to my son Absalom, I want you to deal gently with him. I don't want you to kill him. Save the boy. And so we actually find that despite all of what has happened, David is still allowing himself to be soft when it comes to his son Absalom. And all the people hear this charge that he gives. 2 Samuel 18, 6 and 7 says, So the people went out in the field against Israel, and the battle was in the wood of Ephraim, where the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David. And there was a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. Now, in this place where they actually battled and fought, David and his men were way more prepared and ready for what awaited in those woods. The scriptures actually tell us that more people died that day from the dangers in the woods of Ephraim than actually by the sword. So there were a lot of perils, and I assume places where you could fall or such, and the Israelites that hadn't been out there hadn't been hardened by war and such as David and his men had. They weren't prepared for that, and so a whole slew of them died simply because they weren't prepared for the elements that they faced. But then the rest of them died by the sword of David and his men, and 20,000 of them were slaughtered, and David wins a great victory over his son Absalom on that day. Verses 9 and 10 of 2 Samuel 18 says, And Absalom met the servants of David. In the thick of the battle, in the middle of this, Absalom has led the charge, as Hushai recommended that he did. And he meets the servants of David. And so Absalom rode upon a mule, and the mule went under the thick bows of a great oak. And, he, and his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between heaven and the earth. And the mule that was under him went away. And a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. And so Absalom's on his mule and he's riding and he's meeting the, the army, the servants of David. He's trying to get away. And I remember how I told you to picture Absalom with that big giant head of hair wrapped up in a crown-like feature with gold dust and jewels and all that looked rather majestic. It also was apparently not very good for running under trees because as he's running under a tree, his head gets caught in it. I assume that includes his big giant five pounds of hair gets caught in the oak and the mule keeps going and he's hanging there. And just hanging in this tree. And some of the servants of David go to Joab and they go, uh, by the way, Absalom's just hanging over there in a tree. What do we do? I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. And then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee. And he took three darts in his hand and he thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And 10 young men that bear Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. Now remember, David had given Joab and the other two commanders a specific charge to deal gently with Absalom, and Joab said, nah. And he took those three darts, and he killed that young man that was hanging in that tree by that magnificent head of hair. 2 Samuel 18, verse 33, it says, And the king was much moved, and went up to the chamber over the gate, and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. 
After Joab and the other commanders and all of these army men had fought for David, some of them had died for David, they had won a great victory for David, the only thing that David cares about in this moment is the fact that his murderous, rebellious son has been killed. And in front of the people, he begins to lament his son's death. Oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, if only it were me that had died instead of you. Just ridiculous. And Joab is going to see this, and he's going to come speak some truth to the king. Joab came into the house of the king and said, Thou hast shamed this day the faces of all thy servants, which this day have saved thy life, and the lives of thy sons and of thy daughters, and the lives of thy wives and the lives of thy concubines, in that thou lovest thine enemies and hatest thy friends. For thou hast declared this day that thou regardest neither princes nor servants. For this day I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all that we had died this day, it would have pleased thee well. Now therefore arise, go forth, and speak comfortably unto thy servants, for I swear by the Lord, if thou go not forth, there will not tarry one with thee this night, and that will be worse unto thee than all the evil that befell thee from thy youth until now. And the king arose and sat in the gate, and they told unto all the people, saying, Behold, the king doth sit in the gate, and all the people came before the king, for Israel had fled every man to his tent. So Joab comes, and he speaks very plainly before the king, and he says, You better stop. You're out here whining about your murderous, rebellious son and his death and all these people who just fought for you and won a great victory for you. You better go start thinking them and appreciate them. And he says, if you don't, we won't be here in the morning. You will be a king that has no followers. And so thankfully, King David is wise enough to listen. And he gets up and he goes and he sits and he presents himself before the people. And all the people gather before him and come before him. And David is essentially re-put uh, on the throne of Israel at this point, and he will continue his reign as king. Now, real quick, I'm going to talk about some practical applications. This is the, the story, and as I said, I'd recommend going back and reading those seven chapters. There's more details in there than we could even cover in this, in this message, but it's a fascinating story of a lot of family dynamics that's going on, uh, but there's some specific lessons that I think that we can learn. One is the, the, that there are consequences to sin, and specifically that your sins have consequences. And I want you to think about the characters in this story for a moment. David suffered through all of this because of his sin with Bathsheba. And the Lord told him that, that this is what was coming because he had chosen to take something that wasn't his to take, and then committed murder and all the other things that went along with that. And so David learned the hard way that sin has consequences. But so did Amnon in the story. Amnon was not a good, good person. He attacked his younger sister viciously, took what he wanted from her. He ended up killed at the hands of his younger brother because of it. And so his sins also resulted in consequences. The same thing is true for Absalom. Absalom, despite getting that revenge, he could have come home. David restored his relationship with him. Absalom could have chosen from that point on to be a good son of the king and serve him, but he didn't. He chose to charm the people and start a rebellion. And he ended up dead at the hands of Joab because of that. And so I think a lot of these characters in the story illustrate the fact that your sins have consequences. And we talked a little bit last night in our study to the young people, but it's true for all of us, old or young. Our sins have consequences. And sometimes those consequences aren't public, and sometimes they are public. Sometimes they seem small, sometimes they seem big. Sometimes it seems like we've gotten away in this life with no consequences for sin. And even if that's the case, I promise you that on the other side of eternity, there will be consequences for sin. And so I want to encourage each of you to take a, a lesson from this story and remember that when you choose to rebel against God and you choose to do sinful things, you will reap the bad consequences of those decisions. Secondly, I think we can learn that other people's sins can have consequences for you as well. 
I think about Tamar in this instance. This poor girl who did nothing to cause this, who refused to commit sin with Amnon, and who begged him not to do what he did, and yet he did anyway. The reality is there are times in our lives sometimes where we are hurt by other people's actions and by what they do, and sometimes it has absolutely zero to do with anything we did. It was nothing that we caused, but it was the sinful, evil actions of others that hurt us. And I want you to know that when that happens in your life, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information about what what Tamar does from this point on. I hope that she was able to come to, come to peace uh, with this, um, and I hope that she was able to live a good and happy life, but we just simply don't know. What I'd encourage you to do, though, if you face that type of situation, is to remember that in those situations where you've done nothing to cause that, and it was the evil actions of others, that it's not you, and it's not God causing that, and that God is the one that you need to turn to in that moment, and that you need to rely on, and that you need to trust in and that you need to practice as much as you can in those situations forgiveness so that you can walk forward and move on and be who God has called you to be despite the evil intent and actions of other people. But that is a practical lesson that unfortunately we can learn from this story. I think we can also learn that revenge turns you into the very thing that you hate. Isn't it strange that Amnon spent two years with hatred in his heart plotting revenge against Amnon because Amnon had taken his sister and attacked her and took her forcefully and yet Absalom turns around and he does the exact same thing to David's ten concubines. You know, when we decide to bring hatred into our heart against those that have committed evil against us or who have hurt us, when we decide that revenge is the path that we're going to start down on, we don't solve the problem. We create more. And Absalom created more for himself. He became the very thing that he hated. And that's exactly what will happen to you and I if we choose revenge. Remember what the scripture says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And we need to trust that God will bring vengeance on those that have committed evil and committed sin. And it is not our place to get revenge. It will actually only hurt us and tear us apart as it did Absalom in this story. I think we can learn some things about relationships as well. One of those is that we need to be careful about who we put our faith in. There's a lot of misplaced faith in this story. David misplaced his faith in Absalom. He had a soft spot for Absalom for some, really had a soft spot apparently for, for most of his children. He didn't do anything to Amnon. He didn't do anything to Absalom. He let Absalom just charm the people right under his nose for four years. He put his faith in the wrong guy and it came back to bite him. Same thing is true for Amnon. Amnon had committed this terrible act of violence against Tamar. I'm sure he knew Absalom hated him, but he was still two years later willing to go show up at Absalom's feet, uh, feast and drink until he was drunk and he died for it. He misplaced his faith when he put it in Absalom, and Absalom did this as well. He put his faith in Hushai, the double agent that David had sent into his camp. He allowed Hushai to play to his ego, and he said, I'm the man, I'm the guy, and it turns out that he wasn't, and he died for it. And so we need to be careful in our life who we're putting our faith in. We talked a little bit about friendships yesterday. You know, they say that, that we are basically a composite of the five people that we spend the most time around. The people that we surround ourselves with, they influence us, they impact us. And if we're putting our faith and our trust and our relationship into people that don't share the same values as us, it's gonna be real easy for us to get burned 
It's going to be real easy for evil communications to corrupt the good morals. It's going to be real easy for us to be influenced in a negative way. So I want to encourage you as you think about friendships and who you put your trust in, who you put your faith in, that you put it in the right people that share the same kind of values. And when you're listening to counsel, as Absalom was listening to counsel from Ahithophel and Hushai, when you choose counselors, because counselors are important, advisors are important, They can be accountability partners for you. They can help you along the way, but you need to have the right kind of counselor. You need to listen to the elders of your congregation. You need to listen to the good godly men and women who have been in the church a long time and are showing out a good faith, a good example of faith. Those are the people that you need to be listening to, not your buddies that that care nothing about God or about righteousness. And so pay attention to who you're putting your faith in and who's counseling you. A real friend speaks the truth no matter what. I think that's what Joab did. Now, Joab and David are going to have their problems later on. But in this particular story, Joab was a true friend when he came before the king and he told him the truth, the brutal, honest truth. And you know, that's really what we ought to be for each other. We ought to be friends and counselors and helpers to each other in the church where we're willing to say the hard things that need to be said. Now, we say all those things in love. We need to approach it and season our, our, our speech with grace and all of that. But we as friends need to be the type of friends that are willing to say, hey, this isn't right. What you're doing is not good and you're hurting yourself. It's not gonna be good for you. And by the same token, we need to be willing to hear that and receive that from someone else who cares about us and loves us and is trying to speak truth into our life. Thankfully, David in this story did listen to Joab and he did what he needed to do to secure the loyalty of the people in that case. So a real friend speaks the truth no matter what. I think we can learn that our actions as parents have a huge impact on the decisions of our children. I want you to think about David and Amnon and David and Absalom with his sons. You know, I I don't believe that David probably ever sat down with Amnon and Absalom and he said, boys, I have learned that when you want something in life, you should just take it. Even if it's somebody else's, even if it's sinful against God, just go take it. I have no doubt that David never sat his boys down and said that. But you know what David did? He committed actions in his own life that showed them that. He went and took what was not his to take. You think Amnon didn't see that? You think Absalom didn't see that? So as Amnon is looking over and he has lust in his heart for Tamar, all he had to do was go, well, dad saw something he wanted and he took it. Why shouldn't I? And as Absalom was plotting for ways to take the kingdom from his father, all he had to do was go, dad did it. Dad was willing to go take what he wanted. Why shouldn't I? And I think it's important for us to realize that even if we never sit our children down, and say, hey, kids, you should commit sin. You should go do things that God's told you not to. When they see those things in us, that's exactly the message they're hearing. And if we want to raise good, godly, successful children, we've got to live out the things we are teaching them because we will destroy our credibility if we are hypocrites. If we are expecting excellence of our children and we want them to be this, and we're not even setting that standard for ourselves, why in the world do we think they're ever going to meet those standards? All they've got to do in their head is go, well, mom and dad don't, so why should I? And you've ruined any opportunity that you have of wanting better for your children if you're not willing to live it out as an example for them. So I want to encourage you tonight as parents, pay attention to what you're doing because even if you never sit them down and talk to them that way, if you show them that example, that's the message they're hearing. Your kids, pay attention to your decisions and it has a huge impact. Secondly, as it relates to children, I think we can learn that protecting them from the consequences of their own actions will actually hurt them. I want you to think about Amnon and Absalom for a second. The scripture said that David was very wroth when he heard that Amnon had attacked Tamar and that was it. 
There was no consequence. There was no exile. There was no put to death. There was no prison. There was, there was no consequence whatsoever that we're told in Scripture that Amnon received. Absalom became a murderer, murdered his own brother, King David's son, for four years, stole the kingdom out from beneath his father, rebelled against him, took his concubines for his own, and still in the end, David was going, please, be careful with the boy. Deal gently with him. I don't want him to be killed. I would have rather died than Absalom die. Sometimes as parents, we have a tendency to believe that our children are perfect and that it can't be our kids that are one, the ones that are doing something wrong. And we hear that something's gone down and we go, well, it wasn't little Johnny. I know that. I mean, my, it's not my kid. He knows better. Well, you know what? Maybe sometimes it is your kid. Maybe sometimes it is my kid. And maybe as parents, we need to teach our kids that there's consequences for actions. Maybe Amnon needed to see consequences for his action of attacking Tamar. Maybe Absalom needed to see consequences for his action of killing his brother. And maybe those relationships never needed to be restored. Maybe a lot of the problems that came after that for both of those boys who ended up dead in this story, by the way, wouldn't have happened if David had been a better better dad. By a lot of accounts, he was a fantastic king. And by a lot of accounts, he was not a very good father. And this is one of the reasons why. And if you protect your children and you overprotect them and you never allow them to see consequences when they do wrong things or dumb things, you're not helping them. You're hurting them. Because eventually they're going to be adults that believe they can do whatever they want and there won't be consequences. And sure enough, we know that there will be. Better to let them see and experience consequences while they're under your roof so that they learn not to do those things later on when they're not. I want to encourage parents in that tonight. Lastly, I think we can learn some things about humility. Outward beauty and charm must be used to bring glory to God and not self. Once again, Absalom was a specimen to behold. He was a very, very good-looking man who also had a lot of charm, and he was able to get people to eat out of his hand and do what he wanted. A lot of talents and natural talents and abilities and blessings that that man had, and he used them all wrong. Maybe you're sitting in the crowd tonight, and you're going, top of the head, sole of the foot, no blemishes. I mean, that's me. I am that man pretty, right? Maybe you're sitting out there, and you think that of yourself. Probably not. I don't think you're that arrogant. But maybe you've been blessed with physical beauty. Maybe you've been blessed with charm. Maybe people love you and love to hear you talk and and you can have people eating out of your hand. Don't use it for evil and for wrong like Absalom did. See it as a blessing from God and use it to serve God and glorify him. And if you have the charm and the ability to talk to people and convince people of things, then convince them that they need Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Convince them that they need to be a part of the family of God. Convince them of good, righteous, moral things. Use that charm and that, those physical blessings for the good of the kingdom, not for your own selfish glory. Second, that which we pride ourselves in the most may be our downfall. It is just hysterical to me in this story that we have this description of this giant, amazing head of hair, five pounds of hair on this guy, and it's exactly what got him stuck in the tree and ended his life. That which we pride ourselves in the most may very well be what causes our downfall. Be careful of pride. Be careful of vanity. Be careful of thinking too much of yourself because when we think that much of ourselves, that is likely when we will experience the fall and the humility. Those that live their life with pride will be brought to their knees in humility, either in this life or in the next. So please, please, please pay attention to Absalom's bad example in this story and don't allow yourselves to take pride in, in things that should not be. Lastly, acknowledging, confessing, and repenting of sin will always be better for you in the end. I think David's a great example of this. As David was going up Mount Olivet, 
reaping the consequences of his own actions with Bathsheba as his kingdom was being torn apart and stolen by his son. He is walking up barefoot, causing pain, covering his head in humility, and going up this mountain so that he can pray and worship God. And that's humility. That's recognizing fault. David didn't blame other people. He took responsibility. He committed the sins that caused it, but he took responsibility for the consequences and said, it's on me. And he prayed for forgiveness and for restoration. And the reality is the same thing is going to be true for you and I. We all make mistakes. We all commit sin. And we all in some way or another reap the consequences of those sins. And we see that in our lives, in our families, in our relationships at times. What I want you to remember is that the person that survived this story, the person that ended up king of Israel at the end of this story, was the guy that though he had made mistakes, and though he had committed sin, he stayed humble, he repented, He confessed those things, and he approached God in humility. Absalom and Amnon, who were full of pride and decided to do what they wanted to do and take what they wanted, they didn't make it out of the story alive, but David did. And the same thing is going to be true for you and I. One day, all of this will be over. None of us, so to speak, will make it out alive, right? We're all going to face the judgment. Those who face the judgment with confidence and with joy and looking forward to the time of Christ's return are the people who recognize and know that when we make mistakes, when we commit sin, the proper response is not to bask in that or to make it worse or to continue down that path, but to confess those things to God and to each other, to repent of them and to keep moving forward, trying to be the man or the woman that God has called us to be. There's a reason the scripture says David was a man after God's own heart. Seems kind of contrary sometimes when you think about some of the things that David has done, but it doesn't when you consider that this was his attitude and this was the approach that he used in his life when it came to mistakes. Tonight you may be here and you may have made mistakes. You may be thinking tonight of mistakes that you have made recently or sins that you have been committing or a lifestyle of sin that you have been hiding from others. It's easy sometimes to hide those sinful things from people. It's not easy to hide them from God and God sees all. And so I wanna encourage you tonight to do what David did in this story. Confess, repent, and restore your relationship with God. You do that, you'll see the blessings of God just as David did. So if we can help you either through allowing you to be baptized tonight and being added to the kingdom of the Lord or praying for you to have your relationship restored with him, we want to do that. Won't you please come sit on the front pew as we stand and sing.